Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Thanks, Wes. Happy Father's Day to all you dads and all you grandfathers out there. Thank you for all you do. Thank uh, thank you to the kids who participated in that video. I think one of the things that hits me whenever I see something like that is uh, it's a reminder of the legacy that we leave either intentionally or unintentionally as as fathers. There are things that our kids are always picking up about us as dads as they watch us live our lives that we don't even realize, right? How we laugh, for example. It's just, a, it's just those kinds of things. And so uh, happy Father's Day to all of you. I was asked earlier today if uh, my kids had done anything special for me this morning, and I had to let this person know my kids were not awake when I left this morning. And so uh, they, have a lot to do, they have a lot to live up to this afternoon as they make up for that. Um, but uh, really all I want, I'm a simple guy, all I want is a son's victory this afternoon. That's all I want for Father's Day. It's for the Suns to win game one of the Western Conference Finals. So everything else is gravy. But uh, good to see you all here. Great to see you on Father's Day as well. You know, what an appropriate way to start off Father's Day is we sang the song, as we sung the song uh, In the Father's House, because if there's one thing I could say about what I've learned about, the, about being a father, the most important thing you can know about being a dad is how much your Heavenly Father loves you. And as you as you dig deeper into that, that's just going to make you a better, fa- a better father naturally because you'll be able to love your kids in the way that you know your Heavenly Father loves you. And so if I could offer you one bit of parenting advice, fatherly advice this morning, that would be it. Uh, but we are continuing this morning in our series uh, called uh, Being the Church, looking at the book of Ephesians. You know, it was eight weeks ago when I stood up here and talked about Uh, the vision of our church as we talked about our North Now message. We talked about the state of our church and what we believe that God is calling us to over the next year. It was also that week when I announced that we'd be going through the book of Ephesians, uh, going through this book as a way of continuing the discussion of the vision of our church and what we believe God is calling us to. And of course, uh, one of the things about vision is that you have to continue to continue to talk about vision so that vision actually sticks. And so one of the things that we've been doing throughout the book of Ephesians is continuing uh, that ball down the road so that we can continue to talk about what is it that God wants the church to be and what is it that God wants North to be in particular. And I mention that because now we've arrived really at the halfway point at the book of Ephesians. You may or may not know this, but the book of Ephesians has six chapters in it. We just finished chapter three, and we're going to be starting chapter four this morning. So we are right smack dab in the middle of the book. And also one of the things that's significant or at least uh, distinctive about the book of Ephesians is that it breaks, breaks down kind of nicely into two parts. In other words, the first three chapters are, different, are a little bit different than the, the second three chapters. So the first three chapters, in other words, are the chapters that Paul has used to really set up the theology of, of this whole book. Right? And so we've talked a lot about, he's talked a lot about who God is, what God has done, who the church is supposed to be. And when we get to a place like from the very beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1, and he talks about all the spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places in Christ, right? There's this big, deep theological statement, and then he spends the next like three chapters unpacking that for us. But then by the time we get to chapter 4, there's an intentional switch, and we're going to see that here today from the theology, in other words, this is who God is, this is what God has done for us in Christ, to now the action or the response or what we're going to use today, the word obedience, if that's not too scary for you this morning. The obedience, the response to what God has done for us. We have the theology in the first three chapters, and then the next three chapters are going to be about what do we do about this? And so this morning is the, the message of this uh, 
or the title of this message this morning is called The Church in Action because this is when there's a, there's a switch to the action in the way that we respond to this. Now, I've used this phrase before, but I think it's uh, fitting for us to talk about it here this morning as we start into Ephesians 4, but quite often throughout Scripture, uh, we see this pattern or this principle that's often known as the indicative before the imperative. Now, what that means essentially is this, is that the indicative is a description of our situation. In other words, in the book of Ephesians, it would be a description about who God is and what God has done, and then the imperative is then the commands that come after the indicative. And all throughout Scripture, we see the indicative explaining what God has done, that God has acted first on our behalf, and then the imperative follows the indicative. So the imperative then is the command or the response that we have in covenant relationship to God based on what He has done on our behalf. So we see this all throughout Scripture. You actually see it in the very first command of the Bible. Right in Genesis, we see God gives the command to Adam and Eve not to eat from the one tree in the garden, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, after he has already set everything up and said, this is what you're able to do. This is what I've given you. You have a relationship. You have this wonderful uh, place to live in. You've got this relationship that I've given you between one another, and you can eat from any tree of the garden. Just don't eat from that one right there. So the indicative before the imperative. This is always how God acts. And we see this in the book of Ephesians. And, uh, and I, wanna, I want us to take hold of that because we're going to, again, talk about this word obedience over and over again. And I want us to have a proper framework for what obedience really is in the gospel. So when we look at something like this, in the case of the gospel of Jesus, what we realize is that obedience is a response to the love and grace of God that has been shown to us in Christ. And before we get to talking about this passage in particular today from Ephesians 4, this passage that's really going to be full of imperatives and commands, I want to remind us of one thing. And when we're talking about um, obedience and we're talking about what it means to obey, I want to make the distinction between what we might call transactional obedience and relational obedience. Because transactional obedience is kind of like, uh, like transactional obedience is, is basically us saying, the reason that I'm obedient is because I need to pay God back for what he has done for me. And I got to tell you that that's not the way that the gospel is presented to us. That's not the gospel. That's not God's intent for obedience. First of all, the reason for that is you can't pay God back for what he's done. The gift in Christ is so great that there is nothing you can do to pay God back for what he has done. And that's what grace is all about. Secondly, God doesn't want you to try to pay him back. That's not why Jesus went to the cross, so that we could be indebted to God in some kind of weird spiritual creditor way. That's not the gospel. Ultimately, we are obedient because of our relationship with God instead of transactional obedience. Um, We live in obedience, in other words, because we trust God. We trust that he is good in relationship. We trust that he is powerful and sovereign and holy and just and right in what he does. We live in obedience because we are grateful to God for what he has done for us. We're able to to kind of rest in the gratefulness and the thankfulness of the free gift of redemption that he has given us, and that, that spurs on obedience. We live in obedience because that action of obedience connects us with the good and pleasing, perfect will of God in our lives and in the world. And finally, we live in obedience because obedience is a gift. That just living out obedience as we listen to God and obey and we trust that he knows best, what we realize is that the more and more we obey what God tells us to do, the more and more we actually become the human beings that we were created to be in the image of God. 
And that brings us joy, it brings us contentment, it brings us a realization that we are becoming the people whom Jesus has died uh, to, to remake us into his image. Now, Paul challenges the Ephesians in this way, and us as well, to pursue this as a church. This is what this is all about. So the first three chapters, this is what God has done for you, and now this is the calling in terms of how we respond. And we're going to talk today about how pastors and leaders in the church are called to equip uh, people, uh, the, the people in the church, the saints, the Christians, uh, for things like ministry and discipleship. And I believe that one of the ways that the church needs to be equipped is that we need to be challenged quite often. We need to be stretched. Uh, we need to be confronted with the Word of God and nudged. Sometimes we actually need to be kind of pushed to a place where we have to be forced to re- wrestle with our own perspectives and our heart attitudes so that we can walk in life-giving obedience in the end. And I think that in a passage like what we're looking at today, this is where, where, this is where we get that phrase, truth in love. This is exactly Paul's approach. He's telling us the truth in love. And sometimes the truth is uncomfortable, sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's challenging, sometimes it pushes us beyond maybe where we want to go. But in this case, this is exactly what Paul is getting to, is that this is coming from a place of love because it's a place that encourages us in the life-giving obedience to God. So, in all that Paul's been building up to, there's a clear distinction, and in a lot of ways, between what he has said, as he's set this up, and then now what we're getting into in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to talk about what it means for the church to be active, how that belief turns into action, and what it looks like when all of this belief converts to action, and it acts in the church in a way that represents what the church is supposed to be. So, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin... In verse 1 this morning, we'll continue on through verse 16. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things." And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way who is the head, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, and and which it is equipped when, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, there's a lot being said there, but as you can see, there's a there's a, there's a logic to why this is laid out, and it's pretty clearly laid out as we start. Paul is addressing really the health of the church and the calling of the Christian. 
Topics that he's already discussed a lot kind of leading into this, but this passage is really the payoff for us. If we've been waiting for, to answer questions like, how do we have a healthy and growing church? How do we have the church that we all see in Scripture and we all really want, but in some ways when we go to church it doesn't seem to be quite like what we might envision? How do we have a healthy and growing church? How do we have a church that glorifies and honors God in the way that it's supposed to? How do we as Christians walk in a way that is faithful to the calling that God has placed on our lives? How do we obey God and glorify Him with our lives? How do we make sure that we are truly growing spiritually in the way that we are supposed to? A lot of those questions are answered with this text and with what Paul says here. You may remember last week that we talked about the word that. If you were here with us last week, we mentioned that Paul uses the word that. It's a small little word, but it's pretty significant. And because what that introduces for us is what is known as a resultative clause. In other words, Paul's saying all these things, and then he gets to this place where he says that this would happen, and that this would happen, and that this would happen. In other words, this is the purpose for why we do this thing. This is what we're hoping to see as a result. You may notice that in what we just read in verse uh, 14, we see this phrase, so that, which introduces another important resultative clause. What Paul is getting at in those verses that follow from 14 all the way through uh, uh, verse 16 is explaining the result of what we want to see in a church, what it looks like to be a biblical gospel-centered church. It's a church that's mature. It's a church that's growing into Christ, a church that is working properly, where each piece of the body, each member of the church is working in the way that it's supposed to so that the body can be healthy, that the community is joined together in health, and that it's growing in love for one another. I mean, just take a look at that description. I mean, isn't that the church that all of us want to see? Isn't that the church that all of us want to be a part of? Look how great that is. Look, look how wonderful of a picture of a vision that Paul paints for this. If we're going to talk about a vision for the church, man, it's right there in those verses. The question is, how do we get there then? And that's what the first 11 verses in this passage are all about. So let's go back up to the top. You know, at, at the very beginning in verse 1, Paul talks about the fact that he is a prisoner for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're keeping track, this is the second time that Paul has mentioned that he's in prison for preaching the gospel and for starting churches in the Roman Empire. The last time he did it was actually at the beginning of chapter 3. So we've got two chapters in a row where Paul has led off this piece by mentioning the fact that he is a prisoner uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ or in the Lord is what chapter 3 says. Why does he do this? What is the point of all this? I think what we should know is that when Paul talks about being in prison, he's not begging for our sympathy or our pity, and he's not even bragging about how faithful he is by being the one who got thrown into prison for being so faithful in preaching the gospel. There's a point that he's trying to make, and the point follow, and he leads off by, introdu by introducing the point and talking about where he is in reference to being in prison. In chapter 3, it was all about being in prison for the sake of the Gentiles. And he talked about how the will of God and the purpose of God had landed him in prison, but in the end that it was worth it because it was necessary for the Gentiles and the Jews to be brought together under the headship of Jesus in the church. So he's coming to a place where he realizes this is God's will for my life, but there's a bigger purpose at work, and so I'm fine with being in prison if the church can be established in that way. Now when we get to chapter 4, there's a little bit of a change in the reason why Paul repeats this again for the Ephesians. And what he's saying is essentially this. I'm in prison for establishing the church, and now as a prisoner of the one who has 
called me to this place, I am calling you under the same way to carry the torch forward as a church who is faithful to the calling of Jesus in your life. So when Paul gives them instructions on how to live as a, as a church, he's not this disinterested, disconnected voice that's coming from some ivory tower. He is, in fact, a guy who understands what it means to give your freedom up, to give your rights up, and, eventually, and he's eventually going to have to give his life up so that the church could be established. In other words, he's a guy who, who's got some cachet here. When he challenges us to be obedient as Christians, he's got a little bit of street cred in this because he's in prison for doing the very same thing that he is calling us to do. And he's got credibility as he challenges us to grab hold of our calling in Christ. Paul knows firsthand that the Christian life is not a life of ease. It's a life of obedience and a life of sacrifice, and that obedience often requires great sacrifice, depending on what the will of God might be. Now, another theme that binds this section together is the interconnectedness of the church. And Paul talks again about these three things, that the church would be defined by truth, speaking the truth in love, that it would work properly as a body, and that it would be built together relationally in love. And all of those things require the interconnectedness of the church, require the, the, the peace of the church that comes together. And that's why Paul calls us to this place that he calls unity. Now, we have to notice something important when Paul talks about unity, which he talks about a lot in this particular passage. He's already talked about it a lot in the book itself. Unity seems to be a huge theme in the book of Ephesians. But I want you to notice something that's important for us to realize here when Paul talks about this bond of unity. First, he defines it as the unity of the Spirit. And unity of the Holy Spirit basically tells us at least a couple things. First of all, that it is the Holy Spirit who establishes unity in the church. It's not us. We don't establish or create unity in the church. It's the Holy Spirit who does it. It's his creation, and it's what he does in us as the church. And two, because it is the Spirit's unity, it's his work, it's his creation, it's not just unity for unity's sake, it's the unity that comes from being in Christ together and being in the truth together. Now the implication for all of this is that unity is not an option for a Christian in the church. It is established by the authority of God the Spirit, and it's his design. And it's a part of our calling, it's a part of our identity as people who are in Christ to be in unity, but also to work for unity in the church. It's a calling. So to work against the unity of the Spirit is actually to sin, because it breaks what the Holy Spirit has created in the church. It grieves and quenches His work in the church to the degree that we fail to work for unity within the church in Christ. The Spirit creates unity for the glory of Jesus. And so Paul is serious about this when he says that it's our calling as Christians to be eager to maintain this unity that the Spirit has created. Listen to those words that he uses there. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, another way of translating that, which I think is kind of fitting for this, is to do everything you can to work for the careful and care of the unity in the church. And it's not just, well, it's in a lot of ways based upon what, it, what Paul explains in verses 4 through 6. Look at verses 4 through 6 again. All these ones that are listed here. We're talking about what it is that brings us unity 
He talks about the reality that we are brought together as one. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And what he's saying is that every Christian who partakes of that, which is every Christian who comes to faith in Christ, all of us are responsible for maintaining that unity because it's all of what, uh, it's all of what we partake in together in the church. All of those ones that bring us together make every effort to keep unity in the church. I want to say this because I believe this is important for us to realize. I think there can often be uh, such a lax attitude about the importance of unity in the church today. I think uh, there's, in some cases, I've actually encountered antagonistic attitudes towards unity in the church because of maybe a misunderstanding of what unity is supposed to be. But we've seen it this past year. I mean, the unity of the church has been tested. We've had to fight for it in so many different ways. And I think when we, we saw what was happening, or what has happened in a lot of cases, it's not just here at North, it's happening in churches all over the world. But as a result of what we've seen, I think we've seen where unity has ranked is in, in its importance for most Christians. And in a lot of ways, it doesn't compare to the emphasis and the importance that Scripture puts on the unity within the church. I mean, God's desire for unity as it's expressed in Scripture is one of those high-level priority things. And I'm not sure that for those of us as Christians, we consider it to be a high-priority thing all the time in the church. So we're to make every effort to keep unity in the church. And look, I think this is a command for each of us to engage in. It's an active calling. It's not a passive thing. In fact, I would say this. If that we're passive about unity in the church, if we're just kind of apathetic to it, and we think it's just going to happen on its own, um, we'll quickly find out that unity quickly deteriorates if we are not active about working and committing every effort to making sure that we are in unity in the church. And I think, for, I think one reason is that it's our natural bent to want to be independent, right? It's our natural bent oftentimes to want to look out for number one and not to work for unity because it's really hard work. But in order to maintain unity, you have to many times do the things that you don't want to do. And those things are listed there in verse 2, for example. In an effort to maintain unity, we are told, and these are actually imperatives, right, to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, and to bear with one another. And I think that since these are such an important thing that we're supposed to be active and engaging in, I want to focus on each one of these just a little bit closer. First of all, Paul tells us to be humble. Humility here is a mindset. What it means is it means for us to be literally lowly of mind, and it has to do with how we think of ourselves. You may know this, one of my favorite uh, quotes about humility is one that I've quoted at least a few times in here. But humility is not thinking less of yourself, but is thinking of yourself less. So humility involves emptying ourselves just like Jesus did, so that we can think more about others and their well-being. We can prefer others above ourselves. I think one of the things that I heard about a humble person that has never left me, and I think it's really true, is that when you encounter a humble person, specifically in like a one-on-one -on -one conversation, you feel like you're the most important person in the room when you're talking to a person who is truly humble. Because there's somebody who has the mindset and the approach of emptying themselves so that you are more important than them in that moment. Secondly, Paul tells us to be gentle. A gentleness and mercy often go together because gentleness is kind of an aspect of showing somebody mercy. It's showing compassion to people and not being harsh even when they wrong you. It's showing them a little bit of grace, forgiveness, but also 
gentleness and not being harsh. Third, he tells us to be patient. And patience is also defined in Scripture as long-suffering, which is kind of a strange word, but I think it helps define what that word patience really means in the context of a relationship. It means that we show patience towards people and we're willing even to suffer a little bit in order to continue to show them patience. We're willing to endure with people even when they require extended patience on our behalf. Klein Snodgrass defines it this way for this context. He says, patience is the exercise of a largeness of soul that can endure annoyances and difficulties over a period of time. What a great way of describing long-suffering. And then finally, Paul tells us we're to bear with one another in love. Uh, Another way of defining this, I think is more of kind of a modern way of saying this, which I think is helpful, is that we're to put up with one another. Put up with one another in love. Isn't that just a great way to explain it? Right? Sometimes love requires you to put up with people. Put up with people that are difficult. Put up with people that you don't like. Put up with people that you disagree with. But you do it out of love. And as he points us back to this idea of love, we saw last week, being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ allows us to grow in places like this. That what we learn is that God loved us when we were unlovable, and so we can put up with people that are difficult, and people that we don't get along with, and people that we don't necessarily like, and people that might even be classified as unlovable because God has loved us that same way in Christ. And so I think this is important, for the, obviously, for the Ephesian church to hear. It's important for us to hear as well today. And we talked about a couple weeks ago how the church at Ephesus was in a very diverse setting. They were in a place where there were people from all kinds of different backgrounds, different religions, different philosophies, different ethnicities, different cultures, all kind of coming together in this church. And you can imagine how many times in particular they had to be patient with one another and they had to put up with one another in a lot of ways, right? And I think when we look at our context today, whether that diversity is ethnic, whether it's cultural, whether it's just thought diversity, the church is best seen unified and unity is most clear in those times where we have to exercise these things towards one another. And what we see in the end is that we're able to stand on the gospel of Jesus as primary, to hold the essentials, all these ones that are listed here in verses 4 through 6, those are the essentials of the gospel, and to hold that in unity among all of the differences of opinion. That might be secondary issues or tertiary issues or even nutinary issues. You know what a nutinary issue is? I just made that word up. It means, it means nothing. It's, it's, a, it's a nothing issue. I think that's an appropriate con- a category because there have been so many nutinary issues that have been elevated almost to primary issues over the past couple years. But we have to keep these things in perspective. They're secondary, they're tertiary, and those are the primary issues of the things that we're united on that bring us together in unity. And the beautiful thing about being together in unity among the gospel is it exposes all those secondary, tertiary issues for really what they are, which are temporary, which are less important, and which in the end are things that we can still disagree on and be in unity. Um, a couple months ago, a guy by the name of Kevin DeYoung, which if you don't know who Kevin DeYoung is, he's a pastor and a well-known author, but anyway, he started observing a lot of the things that we have observed in church over the past year and a half or so as we've faced all these kind of difficult social and political issues, and we've come to a place where we see, you know, Christians responding to these things different in different ways, kind of all over the spectrum. And so he put together from his own experience and then talking with other churches, uh, kind of this chart of what he saw and how certain Christians were reacting to all of these different 
what he would call hot button issues. I've grabbed a few of those columns. He does like a bunch of different ones. There's a bunch, there's several different things that he puts together on a chart. But what he does is he, is he gets together really kind of all these things and he categorizes them according to four really different responses that Christians have to these issues. And if you can't read that chart, I'm going to read it to you here in a little bit so you don't have to worry about squinting too badly. But what I want to say is this, is that what he is doing, I, what, what I really appreciated about this, is that he's focusing on the positive qualities, the biblical qualities that each group of Christians are kind of responding to, depending on how you respond to. And the th- three that I have up there are wearing masks, Black Lives Matter, and systemic racism, right? So three of the things that have kind of been hot button issues within the church over the past year or plus, right? And so as we look at these things, what he's saying is that there are four different ways to respond to these, and these are all positive things, by the way. It's not one group kind of demonizing another, but it's, it's forcing us through the, through the mindset and the perspective of being able to say that there are different things that my brother or sister who may disagree with me on this issue is focusing on, and that is a biblical idea that is a little bit different than the biblical idea that I'm focusing on. So, for instance, he says there is the group that tends to be more contrite towards these issues, right? Contrition is a biblical value, has to do with kind of being uh, being in some ways even repentant about the way things might be going in a certain issue. Compassionate, certainly compassion is a biblical characteristics, characteristic. Also being careful and courageous. So it's like the four C's, the four different groups. And just to give you an example of what this might look like, let's use this, uh, let's use this issue of wearing masks, right? The conflict that you never thought you would ever have in church, wearing masks. But we've had it. He says, the contrite people tend to approach it from this perspective. I feel unsafe and uncared for when masks aren't worn. Compassionate people respond to it maybe this way. It's one, but small, uh, it's one small but important way to love your neighbor. The careful Christian might say, it's probably overblown and a bit frustrating, but let's get through this. And the courageous Christian might say something like, wearing masks is a sign that the government is encroaching on our liberties. How about Black Lives Matter? The contrite Christian might say, save it, wave it, wear it, like support of it. Compassionate Christian might say, support the slogan, not the organization. There's a distinction there for them. The careful Christian might say, black lives are made in the image of God, but given the aims of the larger movement, using the phrase in an unqualified way is unwise. And then the courageous Christian might say, what about blue lives, unborn lives, all lives? Don't all those matter, right? And so we've all heard these things. Right? We've all seen this. But what I want to point out in this is that if you were to number these from like one to four, let's say contrite is one, compassionate is two, careful is three, and courageous is four. And you can see the, the wide diverse of kind of the spectrum there as far as these issues go. The simple fact is that ones and twos like to hang out together, and threes and fours like to group together. And we've seen this happen within the church. But what needs to happen is that ones actually need fours. And fours actually need ones in the church. Because they need to understand, the courageous Christian needs to understand a little bit about what it means to be contrite from the perspective of the contrite Christian. And the contrite Christian needs to understand a little bit more about what it means to be courageous maybe in certain situations and what the Bible has to say about that. And you can see how these things ultimately, these secondary and tertiary issues, balance one another out as we are committed to speaking the truth in love to one another by the unity of the Spirit. Sadly, what has typically happened is that ones and fours in particular have decided to not engage in this kind of 
Maybe it's disagreement, maybe it's conflict, but it's healthy, good disagreement, and it's healthy, good conduct, and instead they have just walked away. Or they've left for a place where there are more people who just think like them on these certain issues. Now look, in my, in my honest opinion, I don't think that does the church really any favors. I think we are called to engage in these things among the difficult disagreements that we have with the unity of the gospel and the unity of the Spirit in place. And again, what that does is it brings the centrality of the essential nature of the gospel to the forefront so that it can expose those other things and then we can kind of strengthen one another and and challenge one another and understand one another from where we're coming from. And in the long run, that creates a stronger, healthy, healthier church because we remember what we are really unified on and as an end result, we grow through speaking the truth in love. And we're forced to deal with our conflict. You know, I think one of the things that we have to remember, a lot of biblical scholars um, believe that a church like Ephesus, a church like, you know, the church in Galatia, there was only one church in the city that you could go to. It's not like today where you got like, you know, six different churches within a mile radius of where we're standing right now. And so what that meant is that if you had a conflict, if you had a disagreement, if you had an issue, you couldn't just take your ball and go home or take your ball and go to the church down the street. You had to deal with that conflict. You had to deal with that conflict in the context of the church because there was no other way. The only option, other option you had is just to leave the church altogether. Or I guess you, if you were in Ephesus, you could move to Galatia, but that's, that's, a, that's a big move. They didn't have U-Hauls back then, and it was a difficult move. And so they were forced to deal with those things. That's what the early church was all about. Now, unfortunately, for so many of us today, the first reaction for us is to just disengage and break fellowship and in many ways break unity over these issues. To just kind of take our ball and go home. And look, I think when Paul talks about us being children and infants, that's the reaction of a child or an infant. It's to basically say, I'm just going to take my ball and go home. And look, it reminds me of an old story about the guy who gets rescued on a desert island. He's there all by himself, and when he's rescued, the rescuers notice that there are three different huts that he's built around the island. So they say, it's, is it just you here by yourself? And he says, yeah, it's, it's me by myself. I said, well, why are there three huts here? He said, well, that one over there, that's, that's my home. And I said, okay, well, what's this one over here? He said, well, that's the church I go to. They said, okay, well, what about this third one over here? Because well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> the simple fact of this all, guys, is that as soon as we, is that as soon as you get more than one person together, or maybe even one person by himself, you will have conflict. And this only increases as you get more people together and as you get more people together from different backgrounds, different thought uh, backgrounds, different perspectives, different cultural backgrounds. But as we look at the solution here, the solution is not to disengage. The solution is to press more in towards unity in the spirit and in the gospel. And unity around those things reminds us in the, in the end what is really important. Although conflict often spells the end of relationships in the world around us, conflict should not spell the end of relationships in the church because we have the solution for those things. So if another Christian disagrees with you on mask wearing or systemic racism or Black Lives Matter, disagree. It's fine. Don't be afraid of that. Allow it to challenge you and stretch you so that you can come together around the essentials, all the ones that are here, and in the disagreement between two, two believers, if it is handled in terms of the truth being spoken in love, then that disagreement should remind you of your unity in Christ. 
secondary or tertiary thing that you disagree on might even be refined in your understanding in those discussions. But certainly the go- our understanding of the gospel can be sharpened and we can learn to live as people who speak the truth in love to one another. So back to Ephesians 4. With the time that we have left, I want to focus on this, right? Paul's talking again about the interconnectedness of the church body. And he goes, from the, he goes really from the necessity of speaking the truth in love and unity in the church to spending a significant amount of time talking about the, what he calls the working of the ministry in the church. And I think it's important to say this at the outset of this discussion. Paul is saying here that there is work that is to be done in the church. And that work is what he calls ministry here. And notice what he says is that everyone in the church is included in the ministry of the church. Everyone in the church is included in the work of the ministry in the church. There are some different roles that are mentioned here, right? Uh, Teacher, shepherd, pastor, evangelist. In many ways, those are what we know kind of modern and modern day terms as like the church staff or the church elders, the leaders within the church. But also notice that it is the calling of those people to equip the saints, who are who? All Christians, for the work of the ministry in the church. And again, just like caring for unity in the church, this is a question of calling. It's a calling, and a calling is something that is not negotiable. You either embrace the calling and you respond or you don't. And simply put, what Paul is saying is that when it comes to the work of the ministry in the church, it's the calling of every Christian to be participating in the work of the ministry of the church. It's the way that God has designed the church to work. And it doesn't function that way. It's a lot like a body that has a a, a body part that's asleep or a body part that doesn't work. It, it, It affects the rest of the body. And look, I know that when it comes to talking about serving and giving in the church and getting people involved, um, there's always this awkwardness that exists, right? I feel it. I think maybe you feel it as well. It's often followed with this phrase that's usually heard by people who, you know, talk about this in terms of why they don't want to be in church. They'll say, you know, all the church wants is my money. All the church wants is my time. All the church wants is to guilt trip me into serving in some way. And although there are churches that are sometimes guilty of that very thing, I look at that response as really more symptomatic of the way that we think about church in our culture. Look, in 20 years of church ministry, I've heard all the reasons why people resist serving in the church. Why, all the reasons why they resist responding to this call in particular. And most of them are just excuses for not to serve or just a misunderstanding of what serving in the church is all about. I think, again, if we read this for what it is and we remember that this is a calling to obedience, and obedience is not transactional, obedience is relational, that God has called you into relationship, and this is a calling that goes directly to you. Remove North Bible Church out of it, remove us as staff out of it, remove the elders out of it. This is God calling you to say, look, I have called you for this purpose. This is Jesus saying, I have called you to build up my church, and I have equipped, and this is the Spirit saying, I have equipped you with what you need in order to serve the church. This is a calling that goes directly to each of us who are in Christ. I think it's one of the ways, and if a church does, I can tell you that for many people, I've talked with so many people that are, are, have kind of misunderstood this. They look at church as more of a place that they go to so that the church can provide me with spiritual services and goods, and they treat it like anything else. They treat it like going to Costco. They treat it like going to the going to the uh, grocery store. Like if they have the product that I want, I give the money, that I, that I give the money and then they provide me with the product that I need and the product that I, that I want. And at the same time, as soon as they don't provide the product or the service that I feel like I need, 
I need to move on to the next store. I need to move on to the next church. Look, folks, we have not been called as church staff. We have not been called as church leaders to just come put on programs and services and provide religious goods for people. Primarily, we've been called to make disciples. We've been called to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And certainly part of what we do here, we get to enjoy worship services and we get to enjoy the many things that uh, our talented volunteers and staff members put on with our children's ministry and our student ministry. But in the end, it's not just about coming and consuming those things. It's about us being able to equip you for the work of ministry. And that is part of your discipleship in following Jesus. I think... um, in order to really get past this, we have to change our perspective on what church looks like. Tom Rainer talks about the comparison or the contrast between what he calls country club membership, which is viewing the church as a place where I come pay my dues and then I get all the benefits of the church, versus real church membership and engagement. And he says this, country club membership is about receiving instead of giving. It's about being served instead of serving. It's about rights instead of responsibilities and entitlements instead of sacrifices. The wrongful view of church membership sees the tithes and offerings as membership dues that entitle members to a never-ending list of privileges and expectations instead of an unconditional, cheerful gift to God. Look, I want to be clear about this. This is not just about challenging you to do more for the church. That's more of a transactional mindset again. The church is not a provider of goods and religious services. The church is a family. The church is a body. And as a family, we all chip in for the good of the family, and we all play a role in the peace of the body. That's how God has designed the church. That's how he's called it to function. And if we're not functioning that way, there is something that is missing within the church, and the church suffers as a result. And I have four small kids at home. They all have their responsibilities around the house, and when they don't fulfill their responsibilities, those things are just left out there. And either they're just left and they're not done, or the parents have to take care of it. In a lot of cases, that's what happens in the church. It either doesn't get done, or usually those who are already working really hard, the volunteers who are already doing a bunch of things, or the staff has to cover those things. This is a family. We're in this together. We're to participate in the working of the ministry of the church together. We're interconnected, and we all own this calling together. You may have heard of the 80-20 rule that often exists in organizations and groups. If you haven't, the 80-20 rule refers to the reality that often plays out in groups and organizations that 80% of the work done in an organization is done by just 20% of the people. Now, if you were to read Ephesians 4, do you think that Paul's a big advocate of the 80-20 rule in the church? Well, just like any other organization, we have seen that happen in the church time and time again across all churches, all different denominations, that it's 80% 80 of the work is done by 20% of the people. The biblical perspective is 100-100. It's 100% of the people involved in 100% of the work. Now, certainly some people do more work than others, but 100% of the people are involved in taking care of all the work together, all the work of ministry together. And this reason, and the reason for this is not only that all the work gets done, which is necessary, but so that you have a church full of people who are following their God-given calling in joyful obedience. And look, i got to tell you, that's a church that God blesses. It's not just about getting the things done. Those are important. But it's about having people who are latching on to their God-given calling to act in obedience where they are. And when that happens, 
we're working together with the Spirit and we see a healthy growing church. We get to that place where Paul talks about the result of this is a church that is growing into maturity. Are Christians within the church who are growing into maturity in the headship of Christ? Is a place that is being interconnected and working together and being built up in love. All of those things start coming together. And look, when you get to a passage like this, the response to a passage like this is pretty straightforward. That's the beauty of uh, a passage that is really focused on action and application. It's not too hard to see exactly what we're called to do here. Because the Holy Spirit has built in the church a church that glorifies Jesus, we are interconnected as a reality, and we're called to live out that reality in action by making every effort to care for the unity of the church and by serving one another, doing the work of ministry and speaking the truth to each other in love. And that calling falls on each of us as parts of the body. If you are a Christian, this is your calling to be a part of this, to be a part of the work of ministry. And also to do everything you can to promote unity within the church. Which might involve things like fighting against division and gossip and slander everywhere we see it. It will also involve cultivating in our lives humility, gentleness, patience, and love from within community, within relationships. And it also means finding a place to serve if you're not doing it already. Find a place where you can serve. Next week, in fact, we have a, our starting point class. If you don't know where to serve, if you're new to our church, you're just kind of like, I don't know where even to, to get started. That's why this class is called Starting Point. It's the place you start. We'll introduce you to what our church is all about. We'll introduce you to what it means to be a part of serving and, and finding a place where you can actually be a part of the work of the ministry of North Bible Church. And I think on our end as church staff, again, we are going to continue to call you to serve and to give at church no matter how many sideways looks we get in the process. No matter how many eye rolls we get in the process. Because we've been challenged and we've been charged with the calling of equipping the saints for ministry. And that starts with inviting and calling the saints to get involved in ministry. So we'll continue to do that as a staff. And we'll continue to call you because we need you. Quite honestly, we need you to do your part. We need people volunteering in our children's ministry. We need people volunteering in our hospitality ministry to welcome people as they come in. There are plenty of places of need within this church where we can use you. And we'll continue to work alongside you for the unity of the church. Now look, I started out this morning talking about a vision for the church and how we accomplish that. Referring to what we talked about eight weeks ago as far as what we're dreaming that God might accomplish over this next year. I think accomplishing a vision of the church like what Paul talks about here is just about doing the small steps of obedience. I think just like many other things in life, taking the small steps is really how you get there in the end. So if you're thinking about getting healthier and losing weight, there are no shortcuts to getting healthier and losing weight. You may have realized that before, right? You have to eat right and you have to exercise, and it's a daily thing that you do. But it's taking the small steps in that one direction. I think obedience is much the same way, taking the small step of obedience. And over time, all of us together begin to build a growing and healthy church because what that does is work alongside the power of the Spirit working in us as a community. And that's ultimately what we need. We need the power and presence of the Spirit to transform our church. If we want to see a church that is healthy, a church that is strong, a church that is ready to take on the calling of God as, our, as a community. And I think it's important to pray, but if we're just sitting and praying and waiting for God to do something and not acting on what we already know we should be doing, we're missing 
the first step really in all of this, which is to take that small step of obedience in faith. And so I want to pray for us this morning as we close, that God would do that among us, that we would see, uh, you know, if you're in a place where you're just not sure, your head's maybe spinning a little bit, like I'm not sure exactly what this even looks like to get involved. I want to pray for clarity for us. I pray that God would continue to work in this in our lives and that we would have the faith to make just those small steps of obedience. And that one small step of obedience would lead to another and so on and so forth to a place where we look down the road and we are a church that is marked by our faithfulness and obedience to God. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for the calling of obedience in our lives. We know that because of who you are and because of what you have done, we can, we can declare that following you and obeying your command is good, whatever it may look like. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who uh, are in this room may feel like a, a little, little hesitation about that. Uh, Lord, that you would remind us about how good you are on our behalf, that so we'd be able to trust you more fully based on our relationship with you, not just because uh, some guy got up and talked about it on Sunday morning, not just because it feels like the right thing to do, but because we have been called into relationship with you and that our obedience is based upon who you are, what you have done, and this covenant that you have established with us. It is a two-way relationship where, Lord, you call us, you invite us, you establish us, and then you challenge us to follow you. We know, Lord Jesus, that we follow a risen Savior who is the ultimate servant. And so we ask, Spirit, that you would enable us to have a servant's heart in all that we do. The way that we serve one another, Lord, we pray for unity in our church. We pray that all of those things, humility and gentleness and patience and putting up with one another in love would be what we are marked by so that Jesus might be glorified, that we would say more, that we would do more than just say that we believe the gospel, that we would actually live the gospel in a way that's tangible and evident in our community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.